battle between philosophy and religion, between reason and revelation, or is there even a battle at all? This controversy has been going on for centuries during the golden age of Islam and it's one of the key questions in Muslim thought during the period. Today in this episode we're going to be looking at one of the last writers on this subject and one of the most decisive figures on this particular subject, and that is the Andalusian polymath Ibn Rushd, who is known in the West as Averroes. So please stay tuned. episode we're going to be looking at one of the most famous and influential Muslim philosophers of all time but before we do I just want to give a shout out to everyone there and a thanks to all of you who have written and who have posted uh, asking how things are going on I understand we haven't published an episode for a few weeks here and this is because uh, I've been very busy switching over classes to the online mode because of the uh, pandemic going on, but I've received many emails from people checking to see if I'm okay during this pandemic, and that is just so nice. I really appreciate it. shows what a, a nice, considerate uh, group of listeners we have. I really appreciate those, so thank you very much for all your kind comments, and I'm glad that we're back on the air today with what I think is an important episode. So please let us know what you think. Go on to our Facebook site, The Golden Age of Islam. Post your comments um, because that's what we're about here. This is all about discussion. So today we're going to look at one of the most prolific and influential thinkers of the Middle Ages. And especially, uh, he's one of the few who is probably better known for his influence in Europe than in the Middle East. And this is Ibn Rushd, who is known by the Latinized version of his name, Averroes, which does not sound very much at all like the original, uh, but that's what he's famous for nonetheless. And in fact, if you were to look up uh, both the Arabic and the Latin versions, you're going to find a lot more stuff out there written about him under his Latin name. Now, he is one of those medieval philosophers, like Ibn Sina, who is known in the West as Avicenna, who most Western philosophers and historians know pretty well, even if they don't know what his Arabic name is. Uh, so he is a guy who sort of broke out of the mold and had influence across cultural lines. Now, like many other figures of his time, Ibn Rushd was influential in a number of fields, and philosophy is only one of the things uh, he did. As was expected of a medieval Muslim scholar of the day, and as is basically the opposite of what is expected of any academic today, he basically researched, wrote, and theorized in all the fields that were big at the time. He talks about uh, natural science, zoology, uh, logic. He, of course, was very big in Islamic law. Uh, he's famous in philosophy, but he's also one of the most influential figures of his day in medicine. 
and this is odd. I mean, how many people today would be famous for discoveries in medicine and philosophy? He is said to be the first person to have diagnosed Parkinson's disease. Of course, he didn't call it that. Uh, to have diagnosed strokes. And he is said to be the one who identified the function of the retina in the eye, amongst his many, many other uh, things that he wrote about. And like Ibn Sina before him, this was not just theoretical work he was doing. He was actually the court physician to the Khalif. Uh, so just like he wrote on Islamic law, at the time he was the chief Qadi, or the chief justice of the empire. So we're definitely not talking about a separation between the academic types in their ivory tower and the practitioners. I have to remember this is a culture where, I mean, you not only did every subject, you did medicine, you did math, you did philosophy, you did theology, you did Islamic law, uh, but you also you know, practiced these things. You held court and so forth. You advised the ruler of the country. But as it turns out, philosophy is the one he is best remembered for today. Okay, so Ibn Rushd is a guy you either loved or hated him. Uh, he generally influenced European philosophers of his day. Uh, some of them borrowed a lot of his ideas, but a lot of people in Europe did not like him. Uh, the Pope actually put out a death sentence on his head which did not come out of nowhere. This was at the urging of a lot of other people in the Catholic Church who did not like his idea. And even in his own empire, at times he was a favorite of the Khalif, and at other times he was locked up by the Khalif and had his books burned, sometimes by the same Khalif. Okay, so it shows you things were up and down, and the stakes were very high in this sort of... Uh, business. It wasn't just simply theorizing. Okay, so even though this is a man who's really his influence, his production goes across a huge spectrum of areas, the one he's best known for today is his uh, weighing in on this long battle we've had between rationalism and religion. And he may be the most um, influential one on the side arguing for reason and rationalism and philosophy. He's definitely like the last word as this thing goes back and forth over the centuries between really big famous figures. He's going to be the last one to weigh in on this subject. Uh, and as we've said before, whatever you may think on this issue, it's really the, the rationalism and reason side is going to lose out. But anyway, we're getting ahead of ourselves. So let's talk about this great figure of the some obscure figure who worked his way up from nowhere. Okay, he, he started off, you know, in a very prominent family. His grandfather was the chief judge of Cordoba, which of course we know was the capital of Muslim Spain and was for a time the largest city in Europe. It was certainly the intellectual center of Europe for centuries. Uh, now, his father was not as famous, but he was still, a, a, you know, an important part of this family. 
but he made sure that Ibn Rushd himself got the best education around. I mean, he studied Islamic law, the Hadith, the sciences, everything you were expected to study, uh, he did. He got like the equivalent of the Oxford education of his day. And it is said that he memorized not only the Quran at a very young age, which a lot of people did and, and still do, but he memorized the entire Hadith collections of Al-Bukhari and Muslim, which are very big uh, texts, like Al-Bukhari has over 5,000 Hadith in it. Uh, and of course, these are very important uh, texts, foundational texts, in Islam and Islamic law. So we have to remember when we talk about him being the guy on the side of rationalism and philosophy, you know, he's also one of the biggest experts on Islamic law and Islamic scriptures around. So he's, you know, he's really got the credentials. Now, early on in his life, Ibn Rushd became a protege and later a friend of Ibn Tufail, who is a guy we had an episode about a few episodes ago. Uh, he is the author of the book Hai Ibn Yaqdan, which was, remember, that was the book about a child growing up on a deserted island, which is said to have influenced Robin Crusoe and a bunch of other books. But this was the guy, essentially, who is a baby, dropped on an island, and all by himself learns everything. Basically, he learns every science and every philosophy and all of theology just by looking at this island. Okay, so it was that guy, Ibn Tufail, who you know, obviously from that book had a very, very, very high opinion of what rationalism, logic, and reason could do. He's the guy who basically introduces Ibn Rushd into uh, the top rank of scholars in the world he's living in. And in fact, Ibn Tufail introduces Ibn Rushd to the Al-Mohid Khalif, got him a job in Marrakesh, which was the capital of the empire, and basically sets it up so that Ibn Rushd becomes the successor to Ibn Tufail, not only in his positions in the empire, but I mean, sort of his intellectual successor as well. Okay, so remember, we are talking about the time of uh, the empires that have been the, the last two episodes we've talked about. We've talked about the Almoravids and the uh, Almohads, which is actually uh, the Almohad, as they're called in the, the English Latinization version, the, the Almohadin. And these were Berbers who came from what is now Morocco and conquered everything up to Spain. So in very short order, Ibn Rushd, I mean, he becomes the main man, basically. Uh, he is appointed the chief judge of Sevilla in Spain, then in Cordoba, and um, while he's writing, he's ruling on the most important cases in the empire. So he's like the Supreme Court of his day. And he also wrote over a hundred books on all the subjects one was expected to write on medicine, philosophy, Islamic law, and so forth. Okay, so I mean, he's a very impressive guy, but we have to remember, like Ibn Sina and those before him, he's really in the mold of what a Muslim intellectual is is expected to be. And you know, it's important to note we talked about the El Mahid 
Empire as being seen as sort of Puritans. I mean, they were definitely uh, seen as being hardliners and what, what we might call fundamentalists today. But they are appointing and sponsoring this guy who is known as the greatest defender of rationalism, science, exploration, and philosophy of his day, and you know perhaps really of, of all time. Okay, so we, you have to bear that in mind. It does not fit the narrow versions of some of these ideologies we have today. In fact, you you'd be very hard pressed to find any government today doing um, all of these things. So the Khalifa at the time was Abu Yusuf Yaqub, who was the son of really who was the first Al Muahid uh, Khalif, Abdul Mu'min. Now remember, uh, he's not the founder of the dynasty, but he's the one who basically becomes a Khalif. Uh, so we're talking, this is very early on in the Al Muahid dynasty. And Abu Yusuf Yaqub. Uh, he was very well educated himself, and he loved to debate on philosophical topics. You have to bear this in mind. Even though we're talking about this is a dynasty of Berbers who come out of the desert, who are known for you know being you know, very rough in the saddle. Um, by the time we get to this point, this is a very educated, cultivated guy. Okay, so... It is said that when he has his first meeting with Ibn Rushd, who at the time was still a young scholar, uh, and of course the Khalif loves to you know, discuss all these deep philosophical topics, uh, he asks Ibn Rushd uh, which view of the creation of the world he believes in. Now, as we're going to discuss in this episode, and we have, this is one of the big, big controversies in this issue between uh, the what we might say religion and philosophy. This is one of the issues on which they debate: is how exactly is the world created? Well, Ibn Rushdi was a young guy, and he knew that the Almohads were said to be very strict doctrinarians, very strict like fundamentalists. So he didn't want to answer. So he doesn't answer. So the Khalif goes on to explain all the different views of Plato, Aristotle, and so forth. You know, basically all the views of all the different points of views and their merits and critiques. So Ibn Rushd can see right off the bat that this guy, I mean, he's no slack and he's also no, you know, strict party line, you know, one point of view guy. He looks at all the different points of view. And so that really gives him an opinion of what the Khalif is like and what it's going to be like to work for this guy. So we have to bear that in mind when we think of this stereotypical image of the Almohads as these desert Berbers who are, have this very strict version of Islamic law, which is true. They are also great patrons of the arts and of intellectual debate as well. They're definitely not like the extremists we see in the world today. And this is going to become a big issue. Uh, it, it's one of the things that Ibn Rushdi helps develop is the idea that there's really two kinds of people out there. There are the intellectuals who should be doing this stuff, and then there's the masses. You don't want to confuse the masses with this stuff. So, you know, you can have very just strict imposition of doctrine on law on the masses. And then you've got, you've got philosopher guys like him who get to, to do this stuff. And the Khalif definitely considers himself to be one of them. It's also uh, significant to note that the transition here from the El Maravid to the El Mwahid rule 
didn't really hurt scholars like him. You know, we've talked about that that transition in the last two episodes. Okay, so I mean, if you haven't heard those episodes, you would probably want to go back and see them. But I mean, I understand how it works with podcast feeds. You often don't get the episodes presented to you in order, so you you may not have been. But anyway, um, in in short, here just to review, the Almoravids were the Berbers who took over Morocco and Spain. And you know, created one empire over many disunited city-states and imposed their strict version of law. The Almohads, who come basically from the same area, replace them a century later, and they do it not because the Almoravids were too strict, but because they felt they weren't strict enough. So politically, there's a big change. But in terms of the scholars and the scientists who work there, basically the ones who are working even prior to the Almoravid time continue to do so. And then when the empire switches again, I mean, the same kinds of people continue to work there. So Ibn Rushd's grandfather was chief judge for the Almoravids, but he continued to, to work and gain favor when the government switched. And we see his grandson is now um, you know, a big figure as well. Okay, so it's, there is this contrast. At the one time, they're, they're, they are actually going out and you know, policing up the marketplaces, forcing strict segregation of the sexes in public, but they're also sponsoring very liberal thinkers like Ibn Rushdi, who is so liberal that they, I mean, the Catholic Church basically has put a death sentence on him. Okay, so that is the, basically the, the context for this person. So what exactly are his ideas? Well, among these hundred books that he writes, his most influential, definitely in Europe, were his commentaries on Aristotle. And of course, Aristotle is the gold standard. He is the first teacher for everybody in the Middle Ages, European, uh, Middle Eastern, you name it. He, he's the guy. And it's kind of hard to imagine nowadays where, you know, one theory keeps getting replaced by another very quickly, how one guy could have such a long, um, basically, reign as, as the, the gold standard, but he does. And so even though we are now in the 12th century AD, um, Ibn Rushd's greatest work is still explaining the works of Aristotle. So the Khalif noticed, and he said during one of his many conversations, that Aristotle was hard to read and interpret for most people, and that somebody should do a commentary on him. And so that's how Ibn Rushd got the job, and he got sponsored to do this. Uh, and his commentaries are huge. In fact, there's like three levels of commentaries that he does. He does just one, the basic level explaining it. Then he goes into uh, detail arguing it. And then is his third level where he really expounds on this. And th these are like three different types of books he writes on, in some cases, the same works of Aristotle. So, I mean, he writes a huge, huge collection of works on Aristotle, which he liked to do because Ibn Rushd, we're going to see, was a very big Aristotelian. Um, and in fact, so much so that he felt that the previous scholars 
had deviated from Aristotle and he wanted to get back on track. And, you know, we, we know we've talked about how much the previous scholars, people like Ibn Sina and Al-Farabi, how big they were on Aristotle. He's like saying you, they weren't big enough. They actually, they mixed in other stuff. We got to get back to the original. So interestingly, he is not a religious fundamentalist, but we could say he's a philosophical one. He's definitely an Aristotle fundamentalist. So he's going to take on and correct you know, big names, people like Ibn Sina and Al-Farabi, people who centuries earlier wrote on this stuff. Later on, he's going to take on the biggest religious thinkers of the world, people like Al-Ghazali. So the point is, we are talking about a guy who, I mean, he clearly feels like he's the top, right? I mean, he's, he's the last word. You know, this would be like you today writing, you know, correctives on Einstein and de Tocqueville and Alexander Hamilton and, you know, uh, Plato and something like, I mean, you obviously think you're the last word on these things. Okay. So what is the issue that he has with them? Now, w without getting too much off track here, uh, but it is going to, to influence uh, his debates within Islam, he felt that his predecessors had tried to mix Plato and Aristotle, and that was bad. And, you know, during this time to be you know, accused of being somewhat of, a, a, you know, platonic, that you follow some of Plato's ideas was kind of like a bad thing. So what exactly are they talking about? Now, of course, if you're a philosophy major, you know a lot more about this, and you know, this is sort of a an oversimplification, but the big point on which these two disagree, although there were others, right, is that Plato has this theory of the ideals or the forms, which is one of his most fundamental com uh, concepts, right? And, and basically, this is an oversimplification, but he, Plato is saying that there are such a thing as pure beauty, pure goodness, pure honor, and so forth. A perfect ideal version of everything we have. I mean, to the point of a, of a, of a square, there is a perfect version of the color red, of a tree, and so forth. Now, of course, everything on Earth, because Earth is, you know, um, corrupted, is going to be a distortion of this. So every tree on Earth is somewhat of a deviation from the original. Every expression of beauty is a little bit tainted. That's why they're, they're slightly different, or they can be very different, right? Um, why not every beautiful statue looks exactly the same and so forth. Um, but the reality is just a reflection of what is behind, that the, these concepts actually exist. Um, and that what we are seeing is just you know somewhat imperfect manifestations of it. So when you go look out in the world, you can see um, hundreds of different shades of green, but there really is one, and these are all just sort of corruptions of it. The opposite view, the Aristotle view, is that no, what what you're talking about these concepts are just generalizations. They're abstractions that we make up to draw connections and similarities between things. 
So we look at certain things, we, we say these things are beautiful, and then we develop concepts of beauty. It's not like there is one actual concept out there, you know, like a mold that everything is made for. This dispute, by the way, gets carried out from into so many, so many different um, versions of philosophy. Right. So th this you can see this is a big thing between religion and creationism and so forth. But even other philosophies that are not directly related to this, things like existentialism or even Zen Buddhism are big time rejections of what Plato is talking about. OK, so basically that's that's the tension. This is the debate that has gone on for thousands of years. As we said, Ibn Rushdi, he's a really hardcore Aristotelian, and so his his critique is going to be that some of you guys, even guys like Ibn Sina, some of you guys, you, you have snuck some Platonic stuff in there. You've got some of these Platonic theories in mixed in there, and that's bad. Okay, so anyway, it's these commentaries on Aristotle which really gain him the most fame in Europe, because after the fall of Rome, most of the Greek knowledge had been lost in Western Europe. And this is a point that's often skipped in histories, although now, you know, more modern histories are starting to, to mention this. Used to be we talked about how the, the Greeks and the Romans, and then we had modern Europe and so forth. You know, now we're acknowledging the fact that much of that was lost in the Dark Ages and Things like Aristotle, Euclid, Plato, and so forth re-entered Western Europe primarily through Arabic, through Arabic translations. Well, Ibn Rushdi is one of the key examples of this. Right? If anyone ever asks you, you know, hey, give me some proof, give me an example of this. He is one of them. So he writes these um, voluminous commentaries on Aristotle. Everybody in Europe knows that Aristotle is the basis of all science, so they want these commentaries. And at the time, many, if not most, of the you know, great scholars in Europe could read Arabic. So the first major translator of Ibn Rushdi was a man named Michael Scott, not the one from the TV show The Office, although he, has, he certainly has his own philosophy that will certainly become famous in later generations. Uh, this particular Michael Scott was a Scottish intellectual, but who spoke many languages, including Arabic, or at least could read Arabic. Uh, and he traveled around Europe. He eventually finds a place serving the Emperor Frederick II of Sicily. Okay, he's gone from Scotland to Sicily. And Sicily was another major gateway for Arabic writing coming into Europe. And we know actually the um, the Emperor of Sicily is going to be excommunicated by the Pope uh, eventually also for being too, too pro-Arab or too pro-Muslim. Anyway, this makes Scott famous, and it also makes Ibn Rushdi famous under his Latinized name Averroes. And he is actually referred to just as the commentator, the quote commentator, because it's his commentaries on Aristotle that Europeans cared about. And this is a big revival of knowledge that was lost. So this is how it's going from Aristotle in Greek to Ibn Rushd in Arabic. 
and then eventually into Latin, which is the, what he's writing it in. Now, the actual reception of Ibn Rushdi's comments are a bit mixed. Remember, what they want is the original. They want the, uh, the Aristotle here. Uh, St. Thomas Aquinas, who w was definitely the biggest Christian theologian of his day, uh, he accepts a lot of what Ibn Rushdi wrote. Uh, in fact, he's uh, criticized for being heavily influenced by him. But he disagreed with him on a number of points, things like eternity and the creation of the world, you know, kind of big points. Um, moreover, a larger group of Catholic clergy really didn't care for Ibn Rushd's uh, progressive philosophy, and so they pushed the Pope to declare over 200 of his doctrines as heresy. So they took 200 actual ideas written by Ibn Rushdi and declared them heresy, which of course made the guy a big time heretic, which, you know, didn't mean a whole lot because they had absolutely no power to get this guy, arrest him, and punish him. And of course, if we're going to the final analysis in Europe, that's Dante with his divine inferno. If you want to know how good you did in life, you find out what level of heaven and hell you end up. He actually assigns Ibn Rushd to limbo, which is in between his many, many, many levels of heaven and hell, which is also where he puts Salah Hadin, which is the best that any Muslim ends up. I mean, Muhammad ends up you know, way down in his own level of hell. So... He, he does pretty good. He ends up in limbo in between heaven and hell, which is like about the biggest compliment you're going to get from, from this guy if you're not a Christian. Aristotle, that's not really what we're interested in. Um, a lot more people are going to comment on Aristotle after him, uh, so that's not the big issue here. What we are concerned about is his impact on Islamic philosophy and theology, which of course the Europeans didn't care about. To them, that was all heresy, so they didn't, they didn't really care what he said about that. Okay, so all along in this story, in this series, if you have been following it, we have been tracking the philosophical battle between the so-called rationalists and what we might call religious fundamentalists. Now, today that term has some very bad connotations and involves violence and so forth. But, I mean, strictly by fundamentalist, um, you know, we mean someone who is depending basically on the fundamental scriptures, the Quran and the Hadith, period. Okay, And so this whole question is about how rational, scientific-type knowledge relates to religious knowledge. Now, this is very important for this society because we have to remember that we are talking about the society that, <clears throat> at the time, was on the cutting edge of all kinds of intellectual endeavor whether it's medicine, optics, physics, law, you know, commerce, and so forth. And they have been leading the world for centuries. And, and according to their worldview, we'll be leading it forever. 
So, I mean, if this were today, it would be Muslim centers like Beit al-Hikmah in Cordoba doing the research on the coronavirus and gene splicing and so forth. But it's also a society which is based on religion. So the question is, how do these combine and which takes precedence? Now this ends up being expressed as a debate about what happens when rationalism or reason conflicts with religion. You know, what happens when your logic gives you an answer that conflicts with what the scriptures say? And this ends up being the big issue. But we have to realize that one question is really reflecting the conflict between which one of these takes precedence, right? Because whatever one we come, you know, if, if there is a conflict between these two things and you say, okay, this one has to take precedence, then you're saying this thing is more important in society than the other, which is a big issue if you have a, a society that is based on religion, which is all about religion and the promotion of religion, bringing Dar al-Islam to eventually encompass the world, and is also the scientific intellectual center of the world. So they've got to be good at both of them. Well, of course, the answer is everybody on both sides of this question is going to say there's no conflict, basically because you, you have to, right? You, you have to. You, you need the science. You need, you need the religion. You have to have both of them. So you're going to say there's no conflict, but the way you end up explaining away the conflict is going to give precedence to one or the other, right? So if if we have two things that seem to conflict, if religion and science are giving us two different answers, the way eventually you're just going to have to explain one of them away. So we can see an analogy to this in our society today. Right? If we think about the biggest conflict between religion and science in our world today, it would be evolution. Now, just to be clear here, when I'm using this analogy, this is not one of the issues that Ibn Rushdie is arguing about because evolution was not, that this was not an issue that they were debating in the day. And also because Islam doesn't teach a six-day creation like we read in the book of Genesis. So evolution never becomes the big controversy that it does in the Christian world. But anyway, it does give us an example, sort of an analogy to what you know, what that kind of conflict is like. So, you know, we have today a conflict between what science tells us about the origins of humans and animals and what the Bible says. So one reaction to that is just to say that science is correct. You know, all these things, all these fossils and everything, they're, they're correct. And the account in Genesis is not meant to be taken literally, but is symbolic. Right. I mean, Genesis was not written as a science textbook. It's basically written to give us uh, a symbolic idea that God created everything and he had a purpose. So when the Bible says one day, this is not meant to be read as a literal 24-hour period and so on. And a lot of people take this approach. Now what they're doing is they're not saying, oh, forget religion, who cares, right? They're not saying it's wrong. Now, a lot of people will take that uh, point of view. I mean, from quite, quite a few people will say, hey, look, this is what science says, and therefore if the Bible says something else, it's obviously wrong. 
you're definitely not going to get away with saying this back in Ibn Rushdi's time. So what they're basically saying when you take that approach is you're saying, well, you're at least giving lip service to saying that both of these are true in their own way, quote, right? Um, but obviously you're giving precedence to one over the other, right? So you're saying the scientific explanation that is technically correct and we're going to continue developing it and learning more from it. But you're kind of putting religion on the back seat, saying it gives us a sort of a, a bigger picture, a more amorphous version. Then there's the opposite reaction to this that says, okay, if your science conflicts with the Bible, it's obviously wrong, and therefore it must be a lie. And so what about all that stuff about fossils and so forth? Well, we don't care. Uh, basically, that stuff must all be lies. So we're going to boycott that. Basically, we're going to say your science is wrong. Uh, or at least we're going to present both versions together. So we get a textbook that gives you evolution and then gives you creation and says you can pick whichever one you want. And then basically once you've done that, it's easy to say, well, the same scientists who lied about evolution must be lying about climate change and vaccines and whatever else. Well, anyway, we can go on in that debate, but we won't. Uh, you see the, the tension here. Of course, in the 12th century, of course, though, the science they have is much less precise, it's much less detailed, so it's a lot easier to try and reconcile these two. But even so, someone like Ibn Rushdi is going to end up being labeled as a heretic. Okay, so let's look at where this battle has sort of gone over the past few centuries and see where Ibn Rushd is going to weigh in. Now we remember the great rationalists, the Mutazilites, you know, from the golden age, from the, the time of the Khalif al-Ma'mun, who were, you know, really held sway. And they basically said, if religion seems to contradict reason, then you must be doing religion wrong, so go do it right. And so they had so much power to say, again, they can't deny religion, but they're saying if it seems to be contradicting what we're coming up with, well, you know, you, you must be doing something wrong. Now, the big reaction to that was led in large part by El Ghazali, who we've talked about a lot. We have an episode on him and whom a great many people in the West and in the Arab world uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson was one among them. Blame him for ruining uh, Muslim science completely. But Al-Ghazali's position, uh, he, he, he isn't anti-science, but basically what he's going to end up saying is, look, um, there are some things that just rational reason can't explain. You can't figure out everything on your own. And so therefore, um, there are some things that have to be revealed to us by revelation, by prophecy, by miracles, and so forth. So there is this domain for religion, uh, and science reason can't explain it. And so he's going to say, if it seems like there is conflict, that's because you, you are drifting off into trying to explain things that you can't really explain, that you shouldn't be trying to explain. And a big part of his argument, and this is a very clever way to do this, El Ghazali says, 
Look, you guys can't even agree amongst yourselves. You're always criticizing each other and saying that you're not getting it right. So you claim that logic, you know, using reason can explain everything, but you can't even agree on what the explanations are. So that's a pretty good uh, attack. And Al-Ghazali's most famous work today uh, and one that some people say is the doom of free thought in the Muslim world, was Tahafat al-Falasifa, which means the incoherence of the philosophers. And that's what he's showing. that Look, your, your arguments, your explanations for things, they're incoherent. They don't work. Therefore, if they don't work, obviously you can't explain everything. So that's where things stand uh, when Ibn Rushd comes along and he's going to write his most famous work you know, today is Tahafat uh, al-Tahafat, which means the incoherence of the incoherence, by which he means al-Ghazali's book. He's saying, no, it's your critique that's incoherent, buddy. Um, now, we're, we're going to look at this and how he writes it, but basically Ibn Rushdi is going to argue that philosophy cannot contradict religion. Because, quote, truth cannot contradict truth. Okay. Uh, but he's going to go further. And he's going to say that not only is philosophy okay, but it is mandatory. God equips some people with the brains to go into deep analysis, and those people have a duty to perform this. Now, we know there, there are many commands in Islam. There are hadith that tell us to go seek knowledge. Uh, he cites several verses of the Quran. One of the big ones he uses is verse 7 of Surat al-Imran, uh, which says in the Quran, in the English translation, it says, But those in firm knowledge say, quote, We believe in it. All of it is from the Lord. And no one will be reminded except those of understanding. That's the end quote. Now, the key point he's... Uh, focusing on here is when God is speaking, he is giving a command specifically to those who are, quote, firm in knowledge. And that term in, in Arabic, rasakhun, rasakha means to be rooted, rooted in, and knowledge, the word he's using for knowledge is elm. Elm is the same word that's used for science, which is mean, which means knowing. There are Two, there are more, but there are two basic kinds of knowing in in Arabic. One is ilm, um, and this is like, like absolute knowledge of the truth. And then there's araf, which is something that you just know, like normal normal knowledge, something you you know picked up on the internet. He's talking about that. So he's talking about those who are rooted in this this true knowledge. Ibn Rushd takes this to mean philosophy and science. Now, I mean, it's that's a very brief um, verse there. It's a very brief comment. It's to take that to be a command to go out and do philosophy. It's a bit of a stretch, but uh, anyway, he he uses several of these to show that they have a duty. Now, what he's doing, of course, is the same thing that the rationalists did. Is that is dividing people into the truly wise and the masses. So we can see this is very elitist, and this, this approach definitely is elitist, right? You wouldn't get away with this today. Um, 
And so although it's appealing for us to romanticize the rationalists and philosophers and think of them as, you know, great guys and so forth, uh, I mean, they, they were you know, pretty elitist, and they could be pretty vicious amongst themselves. So they're saying, yeah, you know, look, you know, the, the dirty masses out there, yeah, they need revelation. They need to be just told what to do, and that's it. But you got smart guys like us. You no, know, we, God wants us to do something different. Okay? Uh, it, it is a little bit uh, cocky. So Ibn al-Rushd goes on to identify three ways of communicating. He doesn't identify. These are coming from Aristotle. He doesn't make these up. Um, there is the rhetorical, which means persuading people, selling them on something. This is appropriate from the masses, right? This is when you hold a political rally and you just sell people on any kind of ideas. Um, and... This is this is what's appropriate for the mass. They have just told what's right and exhorted to do the right thing. And this, of course, if you've read the Quran, which I assume a lot of our listeners have, you know this is what most of it is. It's exhortation. It's calling on people to do the right thing. There, there are not a lot of laws in it. It's not a lot of philosophical debate. Um, it's exhorting people. It's the call for people to do the right thing. And that, of course, is that's for the 90%, the 95%, whatever. The second method is the dialectical, which you probably have learned from philosophy class, which is a way of debating something. You compare two points of view or two or more points of view. Uh, this is hugely popular in Marxism, but it was also big in, in Greek philosophy. Okay, so that's good. You weigh two different arguments. But the last and the highest level is demonstrative. And that is using logic to figure out things yourself. So if you listen to our episode on Hay ibn Yaqzan, that's what that's exactly about, right? This is about a, a baby being put on a desert island with no humans, and he figures out everything there is to know about everything. Right. But why? Because he's so smart. And if you remember, one of the things that happens in that book is that Hai ibn Yaqsan goes, he eventually goes back to normal society, but he finds that most of them are like the masses. They can't do what he does, so they just have to be told what to do. Now, Ibn Rushdi, of course, is the protege of the author of that book. So he agrees with this highest level of thinking. Okay, so... On one level, you have someone who tells you what to think, and then you do it. On the next level, you get a debate between two points of view, so you get to pick one of them, but it's still somewhat manipulative, right? But on the third, you do it all by yourself. You go into your ivory tower, and you figure out the truth. So this is what Ibn Rushd thinks he's doing. This is what the rationalists before them have done. And what they are saying essentially is, yes, the Quran and the Hadith are correct, they're 100% good. God made them exactly the way they wanted. But these are targeted at the masses, right? They are like motivational writing. Uh, he will even say that some of it is meant to be taken symbolically, not meant to be taken literally, like the descriptions of heaven. These are not meant to be taken uh, literally. Now, I will not use the, fr the phrase dumb down here, but it's hard not to get that implication. That's what he's saying. But God has also equipped philosophers to do the higher level stuff, right? And so this is his basis to disagree 
with the literal interpretations of the conservatives. He says, yes, the Quran says this, but you have to realize that's just meant for the masses. For people like me, okay, I am, I am meant to do this higher level reasoning. Okay, so he probably sounds like a guy you, you really want to hang out with. Okay, so remember here, he has not said that philosophy is better than religion or higher than religion. But when you kind of look at it, uh, you can see why a lot of people will take it this way. most famous book, The Incoherence of the Incoherence. Now, if there were any doubt, he starts off with a statement of purpose. He says, the aim of this book is to show the different degrees of assent and conviction attained by the assertions in The Incoherence of the Philosophers, that's Al-Ghazali's book, and to prove that the greater part has not reached the degree of evidence and of truth. So he's definitely going out after Al-Ghazali. Uh, the format of the book is the same as Al-Ghazali's. So Al-Ghazali's book went point by point through 20 points that he had uh, on which he disagreed with the philosophers. Now both of these books are very keen to lay everything out in very logical, organized forms. They're almost like a, a legal brief. And this is because they're all claiming that the other guys are using bad logic. Right? So they want to show that I, I think very logically and very organized. So when we read Ibn Rushd, we get him starting off by quoting Al-Ghazali, who starts off by quoting the philosophers. Then we get Al-Ghazali's response to the arguments of the philosophers, and then Ibn Rushd's response to Al-Ghazali. So if you read his book, even part of it, you get all the arguments. Now this may sound like really difficult stuff, but it's laid out in very logical, simple terms. So it's actually pretty easy to follow. Um, and like I say, if you just read one, one page of it, you will get the basic gist of what they disagree on. Now I say it's not hard to understand. His arguments aren't hard to understand, but it's very hard to be convinced one way or the other. Uh, basically, if you're not a hardcore medieval philosopher, which I am not, uh, you basically come away with the impression that this is all about how these guys define their terms. Like, what do they mean by the word necessary, for example? Uh, and I, you know, logically think about this. What are the odds that these great philosophers have spent their lives writing these voluminous arguments, being followed by hundreds or thousands of people but all of them but one just really use bad logic. That's not very likely. What's more likely is the way one guy defines the terms differs from the other. Now, I get it that this could be true 
for like the arguments we see on TV talk shows or the opinion columns or on campaign rallies that those are based on bad logic. Sure, I get that. But I mean, these guys are, are full time into this stuff. So it's, you know, hard not to get the impression that even though they claim to be taking apart the logic of the other guy, that in reality, it really feels like they start with a basic opinion and they put together the logic to back it up, which is not to say they don't believe it, but, you know, it's, it's really hard to think that Ibn Rushd's only problem with Al-Ghazali is that Al-Ghazali makes some uh, logical mistakes. It's more like he disagrees with his basic outlook on life and he's going to take the, the logic apart which is what he does. So he goes one by one through all the big religious controversies of the time. These are the same ones that Al-Ghazali wrote about and considered big enough uh, for you to be called an infidel if you didn't agree with him. And these include a lot of different things. So even if you just read through the table of contents of uh, Ibn Rushdie's book, you, you get an idea of what were the big issues of the time. First and foremost, the biggie was the eternity of the world, yes or no. Uh, has the world existed forever or was it created at a period in time? Now, the rationalists, they're the ones who say that the universe is internal. Uh, Al-Ghazali said that those who believe in the eternity of the universe were infidels in no uncertain terms. I mean, they're not real Muslims. I mean, being, being an infidel is cause for being killed uh, in that culture. And he included in those big name philosophers, people like Al-Farabi and Ibn Sina. Okay, so this, this is big. I mean, you might think that the debate about whether the world is eternal or not is like really this abstract thing, but it has a very big uh, implications. So let's just look at that for a second. Why is this such a big issue? I mean, like, what, what's the difference if the world has been around forever or if it's just been around for billions of years? Well, it has big implications for your basic view, not only of God, but of the relation between science and religion. So, of course, they all agree that God is eternal. Right? That's one of the things that Muslims believe in any monotheistic religion. Right? And that God is there before everything else. And that God created everything, which means God created the world, the universe. Okay, so that seems to make sense. And this would seem to track with the description we get in the Bible, right? In Genesis, in the beginning there was nothing. And then God created. Well, the problem with this was that the ancient Greek philosophers, and particularly Aristotle, right? Remember, who, I mean, he's like, he's like everything. Right? He, uh, he, he's a basis for all our science. He said that the world had to be eternal. And his argument was basically, you can't create something out of nothing. Except that, right, in religion, God does create something out of nothing. And then Aristotle then gives a very elaborate description of some, how something gets created. And here we're really at the intersection between philosophy and science. Um, because at the time, most of this was just speculative. They didn't have the science that we have today. So Aristotle was just basically coming up with a theory of how he thought the specific things in the world 
were created. Today it would be astrophysics and astronomy, trying to figure this out and so forth. Uh, Aristotle is kind of doing a 4th century BC version of this. But in any case, uh, his, his view is going to contradict the scriptural description of God creating something from nothing. And this is important because Aristotle is like the basis of all our science, and this is where he starts from. Well, if he's starting from a bad assumption, then the rest of his stuff is garbage. So this is a big issue. Can we use his stuff or not? And his stuff is the best we have. So this is really like an old-time version of the debate between uh, creationists um, and evolution that we have today. Okay, uh, so they are going to argue this back and forth. And the key point is that neither one can afford to discard both positions. So Ibn Rushd cannot come out and say, well, look, the... The scripture's just wrong, okay? I mean, obviously, they, they got it wrong. He can't say that. I mean, he would be in a lot of trouble. So what he's going to say is, look, you are reading the scripture incorrectly. And he's going to try and prove this. And this becomes a um, big, big issue between them. I mean, the, the bottom line is, uh, even today, people can't explain how, how the universe is created, um, does it come out of nothing, or I mean, is it always been around? So this is a big issue they're going to argue about. But this is not the only one. Uh, they argue about whether God causes individual events or not. I mean, does God just create the natural laws of the influence of the universe and stuff happens, or does God create every single event? Uh, when a leaf falls from a tree, does God actually pull the leaf down or not? Does God have specific attributes or not? Does God know specifics or just generalities? I mean, does he know what's going to happen next Tuesday, or does he just know general principles that sort of give him an idea of what's going to happen next Tuesday? I mean, these are things they're really arguing about. Um, and then there are several points on the nature of specifics and generalities and their relations. And we saw a lot of this in Hay ibn Yaqzan. Right. What are the relations between them? Like when we say a carrot is a vegetable, what does that mean? Did God have to create, quote, vegetables, the category of vegetable, and then create specific vegetables? Or is the, quote, category of vegetable just a neat generalization we use to describe stuff that has common properties? Well, this sounds really silly. Right. I mean, my, my gosh, what, what, why would people be debating this? And, and today, this might be a, uh, you know, a silly argument, right? But it has a lot to do with the nature of creation here, and these people took it very seriously. This could be a life-and-death thing, and it's big-time wrapped up in Plato, and especially uh, it's, uh, and in Aristotle as well. So, you know, to look at this, if... Does a concept like, quote, vegetable or mineral or tree, quote, exist, right? Does that exist? Is there such a thing as, quote, vegetable in addition to all the individual vegetables? We know they're all, okay, there are lots of carrots, lots of peas out there. But is there, quote, such a thing as the concept of vegetable? Because if it, quote, exists 
and God created everything that exists, God had to create this separate category in addition to creating all the actual vegetables and minerals. And then if it, it exists, where is it, right? You know, it's, it's an idea. It's, it's not like there's not like a physical thing that is the quote vegetable category. Now this sounds really silly to us, but determining this really determines whether you say God created everything or God just created some stuff. And we see that going through all of these questions. Um, you know, the, the quote fundamentalists like Al-Ghazali would say God created everything. God created every action. When the leaf falls from the tree, that specific leaf, God pulled that specific leaf off the tree uh, and he might not necessarily pull the next leaf off a tree. The rationalists, the scientists, people like Ibn Sina, Ibn Rushd are saying, no, God just creates the general stuff, the general rules, sets everything in motion, and then it goes off on their own. To someone like Al-Ghazali, that's blasphemous because you're saying there are things that are created, there are events that happen that are outside of God's control. To them, they think, no, it's not. God's still generally responsible for everything. This is a big, big issue because they see it as limiting the role that God has. Right? Okay. Now, again, I'm no philosopher here, so when I read this, this just sounds like a limitation of language to me. It's how you're using the word exist to say a concept exists. But, I mean, this... This was real. This was right up there, whether God is responsible for the evil in the world and so on. So there are several chapters on variants of that controversy about whether these categories, intellectual categories, actually exist as things or not. And lastly, there are several chapters which exist, uh, address things that Al-Ghazali says philosophers cannot prove. Now, I know this all sounds very confusing because we're talking about a rebuttal of a rebuttal and so on. Um, but this part is really counterintuitive. But what happens is Al-Ghazali attacks the philosophers for not being able to prove that God exists, that God is necessary, that God created the world because the philosophers said they could. So basically what Al-Ghazali is doing is saying, here's your proof supposedly, for the existence of God. And this is a lousy proof, it doesn't work, and you can't prove that God exists. Now this sounds very counterintuitive, but here we have a guy named you know, Al-Ghazali, who's the big religion guy, and he's basically saying your proof for the existence of God doesn't work. Wow, that sounds a little bit uh, strange. But what he's trying to do is say, look, they all are going to say that God exists. I mean, this was just not an option. There was no, no other position in the day. And if you say that your logic can explain everything, then it better be able to explain that God exists, that God created the world, and so forth. And here's your argument, and it's really not good. You can't prove the existence of God with logic. Therefore, it is proven by miracles, it is proven by revelation, and so forth. Now, this sounds a little bit strange to us today because, I mean, today, if you were a religious person arguing against, you know, a, quote, rationalist, uh, this is probably not something you would 
bring up because in a, in a debate like that, the rationalist wouldn't be trying to prove that God exists. In fact, I mean, nowadays, um, odds are most likely that person doesn't believe that God exists and certainly they don't feel any burden for it. They say, well, if God exists, he's just, you know, it's a nice little spiritual uh, thing that I don't have to prove. But Al-Ghazali is writing in an era when, I mean, this is it. If your if you're, uh, supposed theory of everything, if your logical system cannot accommodate these religious truths, then it's limited. And therefore, you have to admit that there are some things that your logic and science can't prove. This is huge because once you admit that, once you say that, the, okay, there is a domain that is only for religion and our, our rationalism, our philosophy can't handle it, then someone like Al-Ghazali can make that domain as big as they want. They can say, well, this issue belongs in here, um, right? This issue of gender relations, of marriage, of sex, this belongs in that domain. And these guys, like Ibn Rushdie, are trying to say, no, there's no domain. We can explain everything. So, now, this is interesting here. What Ibn Rushdie is going to come to do is come back and say, no, um, you say that our proofs of these religious truths aren't good enough, but basically you're just doing a lousy critique. They are. Now, he does that, but he also, of course, remember, he thinks he's the big brain. He's, gonna, he's going to sort of uh, concede and say, now, I can see why you make that critique, because actually the philosophers before me, they didn't quite explain this right, but I am going to explain it right. And so, again, we get to the same problem of, you know, Al-Ghazali, who, of course, he's dead by now, but he would say, look, you guys can't even agree amongst yourselves. So here we have this thing going back and forth uh, on these issues. But they're going to fight these specific issues that really argue to this big point of, you know, is there a separate domain for religion or, and, and therefore we have to, uh, you know, limit things that science and philosophy do. Well, this debate is going to go on for a while. And now, as I said, spoiler alert here, uh, Ibn Rushdie's position is basically going to lose out this idea of no limits on reason, thinking, uh, philosophizing. Uh, that is basically going to lose out, but it's going to have a lot to do with the political and really military situation going on in the world. For a time, he's writing what he thinks, and a lot of people will take as the decisive proof for the value of logic and reason. Now, we've only begun to talk about this guy. Ibn Rushd is such a big figure that we want to come back to him again. So in our next episode, we will look more specifically at these actual controversies and his argument because he's really going to be the last, the last word, the last attempt to try and prove that there is no contradiction, no conflict between reason and religion. So we will come back to him again. But for now, thank you very much again for your kind attention. We really appreciate it. We thank you for all those kind messages. I hope you all are doing well uh, under the uh, 
the pandemic and the lockdowns that exist. And uh, I look forward to talking to you again in the future. Thank you very much. Shukran Jazeelan. Wa